0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Oops! All Strange Friends! This is a out-of-character talkback hangout show. If you've watched Adventuring Academy, if you are a Speculate Actual Play original, and you remember when we used to do talkbacks at the very end of the one-shots, or if you're just here because you like the Strange Friends and all of the wacky fun that we have— to all of you, welcome and hello. Uh, I'm Mike. I'm one of the co-hosts of Speculate, as well as a cast member on Strange Friends. And I'm very happy for us to all to be here. This is going to be a fairly freewheeling kinds of conversation. And uh, we're also excited to interact with folks who are here in chat and answer questions that you might have about shows that we've done and you know, combining writing and role-playing craft and things like that. And we'll have some like questions and, and things for each other
1: hello hello friends i am valerie valdez i am the author of the chilling effect trilogy and the forthcoming space fantasy romanticy novel uh, where peace is lost i also stream on twitch as the kids are asleep which is ostensibly when we stream except the kids are never asleep at the time unfortunately this is what happens when children age yuri
2: happy time zone everyone I am Iori Kusano, author of the cyberpunk novella Hybrid Heart, currently out from Emneon Hemlock. I am also required by the FTC regulations to remind you that I am a wizard of the coast and that no opinions I express in this chat are reflective of my employer's stance on anything.
3: And uh, I am Brandon O'Brien, a poet, writer, and game designer from Trinidad and Tobago as well as one-third of the co-host crew of Speculate and one of the strange friends. I am the author of the poetry collection Can You Sign My Tentacle? which won the 2021 Elgin Award. And I do a great deal of other things, including write my own RPGs and stuff like that. So that's me.
0: All right. Um, And for folks that don't know me, I write science fiction and fantasy, action adventure stuff. If you like... Found family space opera. Then two of us here have books for you. Uh, you should check out Valerie's uh, Eva Innocente trilogy, completed trilogy for for is that a, is that a double word score when you when you complete a trilogy? It's like your your series score right? vastly increases because people want to read something that's done. You get uh, a bonus fifty points, like you used all the tiles or something. Yeah, yeah. So I also. Do pro GMing at Start Playing Games. I am getting into game design, and so I've been doing a lot of stuff there, which is very fun. And as one of the co hosts of Speculate, I want to let everybody who is watching or listening know, if you haven't already heard, that Valoword, our Court of Blade series, has been announced as a official selection for the 2023 Minnesota Web Fest. So we had already been announced as a early selection for the New Jersey Web Fest, which we heard about. I think Brandon, Greg, and I like started talking about Web Fests too late last year to to put in to put things in for the 2022 web fests. And so then we had to get into it this, this year. And it's been really fun to have this positive response to that show. And over at the rainbow roll rally, which was the awards put on by rainbow roll network during rainbow roll fest, the, submission that we put in from ValorWord won best visuals. So thank you again to Sean and Navi Drake, aka a couple of Drakes, who prepared a lot of those materials for us and, and help us look good in that series. So that is a variety of uh, fun Speculate news. You can support Speculate by going to patreon.com slash speculate and deciding what subscription or membership makes the most sense for you. If nothing else, I would invite folks to go and follow that page because we put a lot of news out through there since our main blog is also the podcast feed. Uh, and that is all of that. So now I'm going to kind of toss it to all my friends and say what do we want to start by talking about in terms of the, the things we've done and our thoughts about games and everything?
2: Is this where we go back to the OG?
0: I think that makes sense, yeah. Is it Cinder
2: Seal time? Uh-huh. I have to just start by saying my favorite, favorite scene of all time ever that we've ever done was Yoi throwing the crickets at the policeman, Like, Bart immediately set, untoppable, we're going to be trying to live up to this for the rest of our streaming career.
3: Mhm. I do feel like it's in the Strange Friends logo for a reason. I do feel like um, iconic,
2: right? Completely yeah. iconic.
3: Every, every season, every season long piece of content that we've done so far is always trying to have a crickets moment. And I don't think anything comes as close as the real deal. Everything in that first episode of Sisted Seal was uh, full of chaos, but that one was definitely very high up there. Although it isn't my it's actually my number three. My number two is Yoy writing in the comments of our role no <laughs> no that <dot> and empty.) <laughs> But my first, but like my number one from Cindered Steel is still Ash fully brainstorming an entire sway scene without rolling. Because I still oh my admire I, everything that's. Ke- I, I, I still.
2: All that world building out my ass. Honestly, yeah. like, in all fairness, you should have made me roll at some point during that.
3: Like mechanically, I should have. Any yes, other GM would have. In
2: fairness to the mechanics, you should have interrupted me at least three times during that scene.
3: Yeah, but I was like, "I'm swayed." I feel like I've learned things about the world now. I'm just gonna give it to you, and I like that. For me, has cemented a lot of a lot of the things that I want to happen in a lot of other games mm-hmm. in a in a kind of way, and it's kind of told me as a GM. There are times when I, you can just let a player do the thing because they're doing the thing right in front of you, and I kind of want to live to that rule as strongly as possible as a GM. Yeah,
0: because in like a a more narrative story game kind of thing, you know if we look at Blades in the Dark and we compare it to the world's most popular game, they're just trying to do different things. So the frequency with which you call or call for a role. It's different because the games are doing different things in different modes. And that, but there's also the question of, like, is there a point or are there types of moments where you don't even want to call for a role at all, despite the fact that what is being done is really like accomplishing something daring, is kind of steamrolling a scene. And so when Yuri does something like that, having their character just like dominate a moment. From the perspective of somebody who is often a GM, I can look at a moment like that and like I don't want there to be a chance for that to fail. And when I was GMing a a private genre's playtest, there was a role in a mission where they were in a rom-com world where I didn't want it to fail. And I called for a role and it was a failure. And that gave me that made me frustrated. I had to basically tell the dice to go fuck off. Because I had changed my mind.
2: Mm -hmm. A lot of my favorite stuff that we're doing has been happening in that genre knots test play. Like, Valerie. Oh my god. The rivalry with Dalton.
1: Oh my gosh. Just for
2: our viewers, (laughs) Dalton is one of Mike's NPCs, and he is the most gloriously. Inoffensive, cheerful, kind, loving sunshine boy. He is just a human golden retriever. Mm-hmm. Valerie's character Chella, hates him so much. Just hates
1: his guts. Everything he he is the he is the bitch eating crackers for my character. That is just nothing he can do. Every
2: gesture as passive aggression and responds in kind.
1: Yeah, and yeah. It's
2: amazing to watch this escalate. Hostilities are building and Dalton yes. is clueless. Yeah, and this and, is also like a glory on uh, Mike's part as well.
0: Yes. Okay, but I have to I have to do everything I can to share credit for Dalton because to me Dalton is Among the most collaboratively created NPCs in that game, because everybody glommed onto him immediately. And so Dalton's canon is an is an aggregate, uh, that is the sum of our creativity.
1: And, and it was just a delight to put him together because it's it's basically like how does each and this is something you can ask yourself in any RPG context, right? In in any game setting, as well as in fiction, if you're if you're writing fiction all by your lonesome. But just how does each character interact with this person? How does each of them, you know, uh, uh, interface with this person? Do they like him? Do they not like him? Do they find them irritating for some specific reason? And talking about Blades in the Dark, like actually is it it is um not blades in the dark but I want to say actually it was girl by moonlight that has you a, you a answer basically specific questions about how your characters interact with each other like what their kind of base yes. mode of underlying uh, uh in, in frame of reference I guess would you would call we it had to
2: do the thing with the promises during character exactly
1: creation. yes and so having something like that is really useful and just we did develop that character, and it was it was just so fun to put him together as this. Oh, I, I how did you describe him, Mike? As basically kind of like what's his name as the secretary in Ghostbusters, just kind oh, of yeah. Like.
0: <laughs> yeah well, Chris Chris Hemsworth as the secretary Chris in Hemsworth. Ghostbusters, but yes. <laughs> like actually good at his job, and so like, yeah, we we took a performance of a. Uh, of an actor that we were mm-hmm. all familiar with, and then did I've some actually tweets. Never seen
2: that version. Of okay, three. okay.
0: Um, <laughs> that was. Uh,
2: I also can- don't know how to tell the Hemsworth brothers apart. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, Most that- of us
1: can. I know there's three of them,
3: but well, I never.
2: three.
1: Yes, I, or and then the fake one in the good place, which right. is not real. So, like,
2: I know there's three of them. I've heard one of them is in a cult, but if I see a photo that does not have a caption. <laughs> I don't know which one I'm looking at.
0: (laughs) So the the point I was going to make and now have to (laughs) dial back a bit because I was misremembering (laughs) is that one thing that I have come to enjoy doing as a GM is taking not just a casting, but a, a performer and a performance and using that as like the scaffolding on which I then put additional characterization and differentiation to give me like um, it gives me a, uh, a head start on creating like a whole person in storytelling and I've started to bring that back into my fiction where I have like more specific castings and I'm doing that I think because in the past few years in Strange Friends games public and private and other GMing that I've done I have just been playing games where I am coming up with new NPCs just all the time because so many of these games are really player driven and encourage you to not have to do a lot of prep. And I think that that has also made me better at starting to characterize some new person who's showing up in a story because I've already been practicing those, those skills. Will I ever be as good as Stephen King is at that in like his early books? No, but nobody is.
1: Yeah, that was actually it when we were starting to talk about, like, what are we going to talk about during this stream? That was something that I that I had mentioned bringing up, is just how do each of us approach creating those kind of character backstories and just developing our characters? How do we assemble them? How do we put them together? And you and Brandon particularly, but Yuri has also GM for us, like, how... How do you pull those characters together on the fly very rapidly when you have a new NPC to introduce? Because there is the the level of character development that is, here is a player character. There is the, here is an NPC that is going to be a major character over the course of the game, potentially. And then there is the, oh, I need to drop someone in here right now. What do I do? How do I do that? If anybody wants to talk more about character development, I think that would be cool.
3: I think I'll start because one of the things that I have noticed in that regard is Mike and I are very different, at least I think, in terms of overall GM prep, where Mike is somewhere on the part of the continuum where there is a great deal of detail and some very specific, concise notes are taken about what kind of uh, situation is about, about to occur in the next session, uh, who we might potentially meet, and some. Opening, like, flavor of characterization about them that we'll add layers onto as we play. Especially in Valorwood, where Mike is prone to like plan four or five errands in advance. So when we say this is the thing that we want to do, Mike is prepared for us to do the thing. And then there's me who will write three lines, of in, three lines of notes in a notebook and then forget which notebook I wrote in. So a lot of my <laughs> characterization has simply been relying on two kind of fundamental things that I care about a lot, which is what kind of character do I think the player character that is interacting with them in this moment is going to have a, um, an interesting interaction with? And what kind of character do I need to get to a point of plot if we haven't gotten there yet. Like, a lot of *Cindered Seal, for instance, was me really knowing that I needed a lot of antagonists, to be sure. Which is why everyone's first interaction with an NPC is the least pleasant interaction they've ever had. Because I wanted everybody to have... Especially because we open knowing that people have relationships with one or two people, but not everyone had met until the funeral. I wanted everybody to have their own individual hooks for wanting to get involved in the greater mystery that weren't really invested in the mystery itself, or had their own ulterior motives that were not clear that everybody felt like they were interacting with on their own, and then coming together and going, all of this doesn't make any sense. Why does everyone in this city suck? And a lot of that is also the case for Girl by Moonlight, which made it a whole lot easier, because Girl by Moonlight tells you that this city sucks. But like a lot of that was just me constantly refreshing in my brain what is the most intense character interaction that I can instigate in this moment in time, good or bad, because I tried to put a lot of potentially healthy interactions as well. And then what does somebody need to do in order for somebody to be provoked to get into the action, and then hope that I remember what those details are if we don't actually finish a mission, which is why I've... Sp- like, I need to not be in the habit of having to rewatch our last session in order, in order to know what happened. I'm the GM, I'm supposed to know. But I actually like it better not strictly being in control of those things all the time, because a lot of my job is to make sure that you are... Driving story. My job is not to put you on guardrails. My job is to see where you want this train to go, even if we're falling off this cliff. So every once in a while, I'm like, oh, the cliff is right ahead of us. Let's see where this goes. And then just make up things as I go along.
0: I'm really curious, what, what's like the first page or the first session when you sat down and thought, I'm going to run a Blades game and I'm going to do casting this way, and I'm going to use this crew sheet that I came up with. Like, What's that? What's the beginning of the Case of the Cindered Seal?
3: Well, the beginning of the Case of the Cindered Seal was the Fugitive's crew sheet. I knew from a design perspective I wanted to do something new with blades because I was tinkering with blades a lot. It was already the impetus for Sound Clash, and I wanted to figure out something new with base blades. And then it just kind of hit me. Everyone in Blades in the Dark is a criminal in the exact same way that everybody in the greatest RPG in the world is an adventurer. But sometimes you're not. Sometimes this doesn't matter to you. And I just—I was immediately provoked to just kind of make a rough crew sheet about a group of people who are only criminals because the world sees them as criminals. And their engagement to the plot is, everyone, please stop. I'm not, we're not a gang. We want to be done with this as quickly as possible. Um, and all of your advances are attempts to gain more of an opportunity to stop being a criminal. And it's very loosely motivated, obviously, by the movie The Fugitive. A movie that I have not seen, which is why it's so loosely inspired where instead of leading first with what do you gain in the world and how do you use it to leverage power against other factions, it is how do you gain information and how do you deal with the fact that other other factions either don't want you to have it or don't care that you do. And by the time that was done, I was like, I want to do the thing. And I want to do the thing with people that I actually really like. I... Because that was the first time that we've really played. And I was like, I think that I'm going to have a lot of fun trying a thing in Blades with people who are, at at least people I had initially assumed, would not be tied up in the idea of playing Blades in the Dark as it exists in the book. And it turns out I was right, because all of you leaned into the idea that This is a terrible experience, and I don't want to have it anymore in in this world. So how do we get enough information about this weird thing that everybody is looking for, that we can stop being criminals, (laughs) meanwhile absolutely destroying every blue code that you meet, which doesn't do well for your position as not criminals, but still. So yeah, that was, like, it was really just, I wanted to do a weird thing in Blades, and I trust these people. Mike, I'd like to actually ask you then, like, what is your GM process? I've seen, I, at this point, I've seen it quite often, but I kind of want to get in, in, your, in your own words. Like, what, what are the parts that matter in terms of preparing a game for play?
0: Yeah, so I'm almost always starting with which game do I want to play? Very seldom do I have an idea of like, I want to do this kind of thing and then I have to find a game to do it. In doing like one shots for Strange Friends this year since Fractal Spire ended, it was mostly what are games I either haven't played and want to, but aren't too involved for a one shot or what are games that I have run or experienced as actual play that I think I could run without having to do a whole lot of setting up prep ahead of time and for for like a forge in the dark game when i know it's going to be a campaign i will will do some thinking about like vibes and touchstones and influences but really most of what i need to do as a gm happens after several conversations with players after what, you know, what's our series playbook slash what's, what crew are we going to use or in Court of Blades, what house are we going to work for in ValoWord? It was the ex Novo game going into that with a little bit of world idea. That was mostly what Brandon, you and Greg had been talking about and elected to bring to what would become Word. So facilitating ex Novo, facilitating our, our session zero building on that world building and then when I went to come up with errands, a lot of that was, here's what the book gives me for the Ilrian setting, the kind of canon setting that the Drake's created for the book, which is a lovely setting. We used something different because we wanted to build a setting as you know, fantasy, the science fiction, horror authors. From that, it was, okay, this kind of vibe, like this kind of adventure, okay, here's Here's a mission with a monster, because we have a monster hunter. Here's some stuff that does some magic, because we have a guest star who does magic. This is probably going to involve some more fighting and kind of casting errands and plot hooks so that I felt like I had a good quiver of material. I'm going to change my metaphor. So that I had a good set of hooks to pull in different characters, and that process of Creating hooks ref- gets refined iteratively as I get to know those characters, right? That first downtime with Zelfa Hamel, and you pulled on a string and I said, here's a whole spool. Also, it's on fire. <laughs> After that session, yes. I knew what kind of hooks I could throw at you because we had already done a pretty quick and I think awesome and intense kind of collaborative tug back and forth to create what very quickly became, I think, an important like, through-line subplot for Zelpha for that character. And so that meant that when I was doing other prep, I could go, well, I know that zelpha has got stuff going on, and can this character have a way into a couple of other things? And then the other characters that maybe don't have as big of a subplot idea, I'm going to think about what are challenges that could emerge that would kind of poke at or pull at These different parts of these different characters where, okay, this is an opportunity for these two characters that care about magic, but come at it in different ways to both feel like they have like a stake in what's going on, but they're going to bring different perspectives like in the train job in terms of like some magical stuff. So for prep in Forge games, I'm almost always thinking in terms of situations and hooks. Can I make a situation that has a few different ways of approaching it approaching it and is going to have enough of a hook that it will appeal to some player or character like aesthetic interest or like creative interest?
1: I would also like to hear Yuri talk about Blades of the Deep because it was so fun to transition like the system to that setting, and I think it worked so well because of what we were doing but Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
2: (laughs) Man, so that happened, like, shortly before I became a wizard. So at the time, I was less worried about publicly getting it wrong. But I was worried enough that I was like, I am absolutely not going to have my first experience DMing D&D on camera in front of how many strangers, right? (laughs) It's too high stakes. D&D is too well-known, too beloved, and has. there is just too much opportunity for there to be well-actually in the comments when I inevitably get it wrong. And the broadcast delay means I'm not going to be able to walk things back in time. <laughs> so I just didn't have enough brain to internalize as many rules as I would have needed to. Using Waterdeep as a setting meant that I was mainly bringing in my own NPCs, but I was looking for ways where I could connect them to some canon ones, because I had been, at the time, strongly considering whether I was going to actually DM Dragon Heist. A thing that I still have a whole lot of notes about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I will be honest, I... Cheat making my NPCs like <laughs> one of them is actually wait no sorry two of them are player characters that I have had in campaigns like with other groups five years before but mostly when I'm making NPCs I have an index card that has two to three bullet points on it and then I just keep adding notes as that character interacts with the players, because it's just like, okay, what bullshit am I about to come up with? Let's see. Okay, said it. Guess it's Canon now.
1: Pulling in so. old PCs as NPCs is such a delight though, that is just even if nobody knows that you're doing it, it still is very fun. And I I I'm a firm proponent of GMs making sure that they also are having fun. It is important. It is good.
2: And Honestly, like, Blades in the Deep was me venting a lot of my anger at academia. (laughs) Just like, Muriel Fairbreeze was based on a grad student I knew. Professor Bramblethorne, who I remember Brandon hating very keenly, is, to be fair, not based on a person so much as it is based on the four worst experiences my friends and I had with a certain person who is otherwise pretty okay?
3: hmm I've been thinking about Bramblethorn a lot given things that have happened in academia elsewhere in the world in the last...
0: <laughs> Indeed. So I'm curious, Yuri, if there was anything that you adjusted or changed in your approach to prep having done the offline session, leading hmm. toward the the broadcast session?
2: Honestly, the offline session, I think I didn't do a very good job with, partly because I really wanted to get a handle on the chase mechanics, right? And how that was going to translate in Blades in the Dark. And I really struggled to work that out. It was very difficult to track. And then prep-wise... The number one thing that I struggle with is making sure I have Devil's Bargains. So before the session, I did sit down and stock like eight or nine Devil's Bargains on a card ranging from like trivial to disastrous so that I would have those ready to deploy and not sit there struggling like, Oh God, Oh God, what do I do? What do I do? Devil's Bargains are the thing that's hardest for me. I would love to hear how you and and Brandon approach those actually.
3: Oh god, devil's bargains are hard, especially because, like, I'm sure if you asked John Harper in person how uh, devil's bargains are ideally supposed to be constructed and how they're supposed to work, there is presumably an answer. In my brain, though, the thing that, the, the way that I typically try to process a devil's bargain is, what are the conditions under which someone would consider doing this thing a greater risk than it's worth. And sometimes that means invoking things that are totally disconnected from the scene in a way that shouldn't make sense to me, which is why I try to do that as, as rarely as possible. But sometimes I am des- definitely thinking, what if you knew right now that the thing that you're about to do has a consequence down the line... That otherwise would have been invisible to you. And I just let you know, well, that's going to happen now. Instead of just making that random the next time. And I think the way that I've mitigated that, which is also a thing that I'm not sure is the way it's supposed to to work, is to give people clocks and then have those clocks only tick by further action. Like, I like the idea Mm -hmm. of... There is a clock that is going to have this additional consequence, and the only way that it's going to continue ticking up is if you continue being invested in this task. Because it means that I've to- I've essentially given you this dev- the same devil's bargain four times. This is a thing that you want to do? Do it. This clock is now one of four. Nothing has progressed in your goal yet. Do you want to continue doing this thing? Oh, you've stopped? We now have to think about this clock again. Which means that I am no longer under the internal anxious pressure of feeling like I've put you on the hook for a thing you've just confessed you are no longer invested in. As opposed to holding you very tightly to a potential consequence. Only for you to realize, I don't enjoy this narrative train anymore. I want to get off, but I asked to be on this train. It's so, like those things are very difficult. I uh, I will admit, I want to work very hard on devil's bargains and i do feel like a lot of uh, very like niche themed blades blades hacks are very good at particularly flavoring what those things are supposed to feel like like i like poisoned promises in girl by moonlight a lot more because i know exactly what i'm asking you it's in the name poisoned promise in ways that a devil's bargain is a great deal more broad, which is not a bad thing, but can lead me down a hole sometimes in a way that I don't want to disadvantage other players when I make those decisions. But Mike, what do you think about those things?
0: So I took some notes because it's, it's something that I, I think a lot about but then I think very little about them in the moment because I'm trying so hard to improvise in the moment. So it's like, it's a very weird kind of thing. So I try to think or what I tend to go to for devil's bargains or their equivalent is bringing in an element of the scene or of a situation that I haven't gotten to do yet. So like, Oh, here's a, here's a new angle or additional axis of tension or, adding a complication that would like escalate the scene in a way that is at least plausibly related where it's like, Oh, okay, this is a reasonable time for some additional dimension or texture of the scene to arise in parallel with whatever the character is trying to do. And the third one is devil's bargain as prep. What could I, what could happen here or what could I ask for here that creates future trouble for the player characters that I can then cash out later? Like I get to make a I get to make a narrative deposit that I get to then cash out as a problem later, which is, makes me very happy. And I think that the equivalent mechanic in genre knots fit into place much more for me once I started calling them plot twists.
3: Mm-hmm. It's like
1: okay. <laughs> The notion of Chekhov's gun is is very, I think, useful in that sense, right? Like, I I finally just saw everything everywhere all at once last night, and there was the trophies. (laughs) I was definitely... I had the moment of like, this is going to be used later, isn't it? But how could it be used later? This is very inappropriate. No, the movie totally went there. And I feel like that is something that Blades can do as well, really well, when you have those kinds of things. Like Brandon was saying, in terms of creating clocks, it really is, you are putting the gun on the mantle. You are saying, at some point, this is going to pay off later. in a way that maybe the characters don't expect or in a way that they do expect, but nonetheless can't necessarily prevent or prepare for. So there's, there's a lot of room there to play with.
0: Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. I think depending on your players, if I'm offering devil's bargains and players are taking them every time, I may not be asking for enough. And so in Valor I feel like I've mostly hit a pretty good balance where the players will take like one one out of three, sometimes two out of three, but in that or and then in the other games that I run at least a quarter of the time, I'm hoping that what I will ask for will make the players go, "Oh no, 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 so that those that the bargain feels dangerous because if it's too easy and there's no doubt or there's no uh, worry from the players. I may not be exacting enough of a, uh, of a price. And part of that's going to depend on tone, right? What is in, like, what's the tonal range we have for the game? And so for Blades, I'm going to probably ask more than I would in genre knots in all the playtests that I've done because most of those playtests have been tonally much more similar to, like, a leverage vibe because that, it's such a big touchstone for me.
3: Mm-hmm. I think another, and this is not an actual answer to the devil's bargain question, but it is a way out of the devil's bargain question, which is if your devil's bargain is too intense, the player will not take it anyway, which means that the game goes back to the game rules as written, which again is what I, I, I try to avoid. Uh, I try to think very deeply about uh, the devil's bargains that I'm giving, and I have a lot of feelings about the devil's bargains that I've already given as a result, precisely because I want people to get the extra die. But the alternative is, if you're in a pinch, you're still in that pinch now, and that's the way that the game is designed to go. And that's not bad, and that's still more ammunition for me as a player. So it's actually more ideal for me to either say that I don't have one, or to give the worst possible devil's bargain that has come to my mind. Knowing that nine times out of ten, which is going to continue with these stakes that have already been invented. Which has only not worked, of course, playing with you all, because every once in a while you're like, oh, a risk? Let's see how badly this goes. Which I appreciate. It's very rare for most of you to be to say, I don't want to engage in this devil's bargain, or at least don't want to know what it is. Which is good, which is a good instinct to have as a player. and Which means that I need to actually answer the devil's bargain question.
1: I think there are different levels of player in terms of like how risk averse they are. And I think it does vary by system. I think some systems are more conducive to the risk taking. And I think also that some, some groups like it, among us with the strange friends, it has always felt as if we are very like character and story forward as opposed to obsessing over mechanics and how to reproduce them perfectly, I guess, uh, and how to utilize them perfectly, which is not to say that the mechanics aren't good and useful as framework, but I think that we are not as devoted to them as some other um, groups might be. But also what that means is that because we are player and, and uh, I'm sorry, character and story forward, I think that our willingness to take risks is in part because we know that drama makes good stories. And so even if we do fail, even if the devil's bargain is such that, oh no, this is a bad consequence that we're going to have to suffer through, that's drama. That's good character building opportunities for us. And so our goal is not necessarily at all times to make our characters be super awesome, cool people doing cool stuff, even though, yes, we do want our characters to be cool and do cool stuff. But we're also here for for the story. We're here for the drama. And so we are willing to take those chances in the interests of, like, okay, yeah, this may make us look bad, but will it be cool for the story? Will it work well for the story?
0: Yeah, and I've, in the, I think in the last year especially, I've become less inclined to pull my punches when I'm GMing a Forge in the Dark game because I know that players can resist, right? So I can hand out a consequence that is a terrifying level three consequence because I know that somebody can resist it if they want to. And I think having that system as part of the, the kind of um, mechanical architecture that we're working with makes it easier to lean into trouble because we know that we have a little bit of a panic button to get out of it.
1: But also sometimes the the trouble is really cool. Like, look at what happened to Yuri's character, who was like, you know, well, the whole kidnapping attempt gone wrong was wild, but then having to deal with the injury and then, like, ghost murdering a bunch of dudes on the way out the door. That was all extremely cool. And it was more dramatic because of the harm that had been taken and the consequences that had been enacted up to that point.
3: Mm -hmm. So I wanted to kind of pivot on something that you said just now, Valerie, about the fact that uh, everyone is so character forward in their play. One of the things that I like a lot about the campaign stuff that we've played so far, but it also comes up in a lot of our one-shot stuff, is very strong interpersonal social RP as well. Like, everyone is very committed to like fleshing out as deeply as possible the relationships between each other. And it's some of the parts of our campaign play that I actually like the most, which is why our seasons are so long, because I like giving you opportunities to just continue dramatizing the thing. And I kind of want to get a sense, not only of your, uh, what you think about your approach to engaging socially with other PCs, but how you feel it feeds back into your actual writing process as well, writing characters and writing character interactions, engaging from a player to player perspective rather than a player to GM perspective, where my goal is to give you more plot. This is a moment for you to just engage as characters. And I want to go with Valerie first.
1: I, I feel like, again, some of the frameworks of some of these games are really useful in terms of setting up like, okay, this is how these characters are going to interact with each other. This is the sort of imp- most important thing underpinning their relationship and how they engage with each other. But I think that what's cool is that within each of our characters, there are sort of core elements that will naturally create relationships between them. So for example, thinking about our Girl by Moonlight game, Nina was such a... I don't want to know if baby is the right word. It's just Nina was baby. And so everyone, I think, had a tendency to want to protect Nina, which was very in keeping with each of their different characters. Mike's character was intrinsically a protector, of course, just by default. But then Yoi's character also was very protective of Nina in his own like grumpy way. And also then, you know, Yori's character was Nina's best friend. And so also protective. And so I think that that is one of the cool things is that when you create a character who has particular qualities, then those qualities will, like I said, kind of interface and liaise with the other characters' primary qualities in ways that cause particular relationships and interactions to develop naturally.
2: I think, like, about halfway through, we also saw where the momentum of that was going, where it's like, oh, oh, Nina is the obvious candidate for the final episode Madoka uh, held transformation because of how we're protecting her. Let's lean into this. Like, it was a very natural way for those particular dominoes to fall.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, again, like character makes story a lot of the time. You you don't have to write it that way. Everyone has their own methods of, of, you know, character first, plot first, you know, world building first or all of them together at the same time or what have you. But like, I feel that the way that we have developed our characters together, both, you know, live and, you know, in the back room, basically, uh, has has led to really just strong interactions and relationships. And it works very well for us.
0: Yeah, I think playing with y'all has really sold me on how important to me both as a player and a GM character bonds are for a game not necessarily automatically for a one shot because i think in a one shot you can do you can go a long way with a little bit of work but with a campaign because we because Blades in the Dark does not have bonds written into the book what we did in that first session of Cindered Seal was we established bonds right where every every player character knew two other player characters but not all three so that we had to tap we had to fully pull on the web of connections for that four, set of four people to be all uh, all able to interact with one another in like in a meaningful fashion and so we had that plus Brandon kind of doing the like Ki- uh, pulling the rug out from underneath you situation with the, the fugitives and then I feel like a lot of how we learned to play with one another in Cindered Seal then informed things that we wanted to set up for ourselves in Fractal Spire.
3: And uh, I, just to like speak to some of that as well, I think, especially when it came to Cindered Seal, one of the things that I was really hoping for when I did that, because again, there Like, the idea of bonds in a a Forge in the Dark game is a relatively recent invention to the thing. And it was really important, especially because I knew what a lot of the inciting incidents were, to make sure that you were in a position to say that you knew enough, but not a lot, about each other and about Runa that when things started popping off, you would be posed, to, you would be pressed to ask questions, but only to people that you trusted, because those were the people that you actually know. And if I, like, part of me was hoping that one of those consequences would be a natural kind of conflict in the group where everybody would be like, there is a person that I do not like. And everybody is accusing all of us as a, of a crime, so I believe that this person is a criminal. But instead, all of you are like, the blue coats are bad and not to be trusted. We're not supposed to lean into this, obviously, imperialist violence. So we're all just gonna run, okay? We're not gonna ask any questions. Which I was also very fond of, um, especially as Ring led a lot of the like, purely radical movement in that regard. So I appreciated that a lot as well. Uh, I think
2: we also just straight up turned down your plot hooks sometimes. Like, early on, you were, like, Aldo Booker was trying to recruit Ash, which would have been, you know, an internal schism that would have caused a lot of interesting juicy drama in the uh, character group later on. And I just flat refused it because out of character, I felt like my character was not meshing well with the group, especially because, like, I had come in prepped for a slightly more comedic campaign than we were doing. So, like, when I go back and listen to that first episode, oh, God, that was really fucking rough. Like, I did bad work that day. I was bringing my A game, but I brought it to the wrong game. <laughs> and so I just was not willing to accept that particular plot hook from you when I was already having such a hard time shoehorning my character into the group.
0: Yeah, because I think for me, the so much of what the group was going to be came into clarity through Yoi's early roleplay in defining Crossroads as this deeply sympathetic, like fish out of water, person trying really hard and having a like largely failing to relate to people and then being pushed to that that panic point. And so like crossroads is the the person we must all protect in Cindered Seal that we all kind of came at it this in different ways. And I think it was Yoi's strong choices as a player to me that I felt like Helped us coalesce that group and figure out what the game was going to be, right? Because it didn't become what it was until like it wasn't. It wasn't the case of the Cindered seal with the Strange Friends in hour one of session one, to me.
3: Mm-hmm. I find it really interesting that you honed uh, in uh, Iori on um, refusing some of my plot hooks because, admittedly, that although Booker has requested your aid in X was supposed to be a big deal like it was one of the things mm-hmm. that i had uh initially like honed in as one of the strong hooks that would probably draw the party to the rest of the action and i will admit that when you turned it down the first time when you when you were not engaging i was like this is not going the way that i planned it to i feel like mm-hmm. i'm screwing up here and then as it happened again I, like at the point where one of Booker's men had already thrown a brick through the antique shop. Mm -hmm. uh, And you responded by going, yeah, this is not ideal. We're leaving. (laughs) I was like, this is actually the the player-GM tension that is supposed to be taking place. It's part of the reason, like, one of the personal internal reasons why i refer to myself as a stage manager and not a gm is i believe my job is not to be the god of story my job is to make sure that the lights don't fall off stage so every once in a while when someone doesn't want the thing that i've given them i have to put my stage manager hat on and go okay the production still needs to continue and i don't know what the next line is what should happen next and Improvise as a result, which is how the street fight happened in the first place. None of that was ever supposed to happen. I have, I was never, pre- I was except for initially planning that at some point Skelly would have to snipe someone. Had no preparation for most combat in Syndic Seal. I wanted everything to be we want to be in as little, we want to be in as few fights as possible because everybody wants to kill us and we don't want the the Blue hoods to know where we are. And instead, you're like, I I vaguely recall somebody being lit on fire by being cut so quickly (laughs) that reality (laughs) just kind of warped around the guy. People just got kept being deleted. And that was actually fun for me outside of my actual role... Moderating the game as a player because because now I'm like things are happening that I was not prepared for, and they're all the most intense decisions that anyone has ever made in these circumstances. And I enjoy that you made them, (laughs) so everyone's in. So now I kind of lean into the idea that I have to fulfill that tension. Like my job is still to give you hooks that you like, to give you hooks that you're actually invested in. What it means when I haven't. I am now... That is not an admonition of my skill. That is a Mm -hmm. provocation that I should be giving you something else. Even if that other thing is intense and reckless and bad.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I think part of it was also like, because I sensed that it was not... that I was not fitting my character into the setting and group very well, that made me take some really risk-averse choices when I would is figuring out the first few episodes
3: mm-hmm. i imagine that's how the warehouse scene happened in the first place yes
2: mm-hmm.
1: i think it worked out really well though ultimately because as was sort of previously discussed like you know the other other games where you're an adventurer a lot of times they wrote they revolve around violence it is you're going from encounter to encounter, and yes, there are it, it, there are opportunities for a lot of diplomacy and character interaction, all that kind of thing. But a lot of times, games like that are treated as just sort of. Any any character building that you do is just a prelude to violence. And I think that Mm -hmm. Blades has some of that as well. Like, it is a faction game. It is a game that is ultimately about gangs defending their turf and attempting to acquire more turf and expand and, you know, improve their power bases. And so, (laughs) Blades, I think, gives a lot of really good opportunities for ways to do that without violence. And because our crew had a tendency to not choose violence then when we did it was much more dramatic and impactful impactful
2: yeah that said like at one point i did tally our body count because i was like are we committing the ttrpg sin of becoming murder hobos so like i had to count up and we were in the double digits but then i was like (laughs) yeah but most of them are cops so i think it's okay (laughs)
3: I mean, most of them were accidents, too. Most of those deaths, if I recall correctly, were crossroads is having an emotional moment right now everyone should leave or oh, you're not leaving too bad. So you shouldn't feel guilty, especially because they were cops. But still,
2: I, I knifed more people than an antique dealer traditionally should. <laughs> Somehow I feel this is
3: historically untrue, but i like accept your answer. <laughs>
2: I right. mean, I worked in an antique shop in Virginia for a while when I was a lot younger, and I never knifed anyone there, even when there were a couple times, honestly, it would have been deserved and fair.
0: It may yep. be that your antiquarian in Cindered Seal is the one who breaks the curve, when in reality, the, like, the median number of stabbings for antiquarians should be higher.
1: Antiquarians, <laughs> George, <laughs> Georg. Oh, God.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, shall we go so to break yeah. on that?
3: I think we should, in fact, take a break. The theme music for Speculate is Yellow Wood by Greg's band, The Road. Find out more at www.thebandtheroad.com. Hi, everyone. If you've enjoyed what we've been doing here on Speculate and you've been thinking to yourself, where can I get more role-playing in my life? Can I recommend arvaneleron.com, A-R-V-A-N-E-L-E-R-O-N.com, where you can check out the Curse of Strahd podcast. This, set in the world of Ravenloft, is a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition campaign, which has been running for a long time with a similar group of players, and which has been both a lot of fun, and I think you will find enjoyable. If you like it, please let us know both there and over here.